Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker. We have a big news show for you today. Gosh, I mean, I, I try to whittle these things down, but there were some really, really interesting stories that I wanted to cover. So we, we've got a we've got a full show for you today. So I'm, I'm not going to do a whole lot by way of intro, other than to go through the the, the rundown here. So uh, I'm going to start with a story from ZDNet about some unusual ransomware going around targeting Windows PCs. Something to watch out for. We haven't really seen ransomware kind of going after personal computers as much lately. This seems to be a change in that. I've got some interesting news from Signal, my preferred end-to-end encrypted messaging app, the one I always tell you to use. It's removing support for regular old SMS on Android phones, which is something I didn't even know they did. Uh, and I've got, actually got a funny story about that, so I'll, I'll tell you more when we get to that. Toyota has disclosed a data leak from a really stupid error that exposed a lot of user data thanks to an app that Toyota really wants you to put on your phone. The White House has announced an ambitious new cybersecurity labeling effort, kind of like the Energy Star labels that we're used to seeing here in the United States, that has some, some promise. I've got a new article about a topic that was covered a long time ago uh, in relation to Target, and that was about how Target, by monitoring what this young woman was buying, figured out correctly that she was pregnant. And unfortunately, she had not told her parents yet, and Target started sending her advertisements to the house, which caused a little bit of an issue, as you might well imagine. You know, that story's kind of old. We've trotted that out a lot here in the privacy community, but there's now a kind of a new version of this story, and I think it's telling. The Guardian has uh, an article about privacy and Apple in particular, and how, you know, it claims to be all that in a bag of chips when it comes to privacy, but it's still falling short. And I want to, I want to echo some of the things that they they say in that article. There's a really weird, new, creepy type of advertising in the real world. This is privacy failing us, not just online anymore, and not being followed online, but actually now having our privacy invaded while we're walking around in meat space. And this is just really creepy and just another way in which the the movie Minority Report has been a sad prediction of the future that is coming to pass. I've got another just weird story that on the face of it sounds like a good thing, but under the covers just super creeps me out about an automated system for sending people money after the disaster of Hurricane Ian. And then Meta, or Facebook, is really pushing the metaverse and wants us all to be engaged in this virtual reality world by wearing one of their headsets. And of course, as you might expect, that <laughs> that will allow them to even get creepier in terms of how they track us. And this article will explain some of that. And then finally, a story from Wired about how you can try to protect yourself from school surveillance. Then I've got a Dear Carrie question that I'm going to answer. And finally, my tip of the week, we'll be talking about how your TV is actually watching you. So we got a ton of stuff to get to. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, this is an article from ZDNet, and it's about some uh, unusual ransomware that's targeting Windows PCs. A ransomware attack delivered by fake Windows 10 and antivirus software updates is targeting home users using sneaky techniques to stay undetected before encrypting files and demanding a ransom payment of thousands of dollars. 
the Magniber campaign, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, it's M-A-G-N-I-B-E-R, detailed by HP Wolf Security, is unusual for 2022 in the way it focuses on generating relatively small ransom payments from individual users compared to what could be extorted by going after businesses and demanding large ransoms. In many ways, it's a throwback to early ransomware campaigns that encrypted files on individual computers. However, Magniber is using innovative techniques that make it much more difficult to detect, especially for home users. The attack chain begins when the user visits a website controlled by the attackers designed to look like legitimate websites and services that victims are tricked into visiting in one of a number of ways. The website suggests that the user needs to update their computer with an important software update, claiming that their antivirus or Windows system needs it, and tricks users into downloading a JavaScript file that contains the ransomware payload. Magnabur being distributed via JavaScript files appears to be a new technique that has only emerged recently. Previously, it has been hidden inside MSI and EXE files, which are types of installers and executables on Windows. By using a JavaScript file, the attack can use a technique called .NET to JScript, allowing it to load a .NET executable in memory, meaning the ransomware does not need to be saved to disk. By doing this in memory, the attack bypasses detection and prevention tools like antivirus software that monitors files written to disk rather than memory. It's this executable that runs the ransomware's code, which deletes shadow copies of files and disables Windows backup and recovery features before encrypting the the victim's files. The ransomware also gains administrator privileges using an account control bypass to run commands without alerting the user. By the time the user knows something is wrong, it's too late because their files have been encrypted and they've been presented with a ransom note telling them what's happened and providing them with a link to follow to negotiate a deal for the decryption key. And victims are told that if they attempt to restore their computer without paying a ransom, their files will be permanently wiped. Researchers say the ransom demand can be up to $2,500. Patrick Schlapfer, malware analyst at uh, HP Wolf Security, says, quote, Users can reduce risk by making sure updates are only installed from trusted sources, checking URLs to ensure official vendor websites are used, and backing up data regularly to minimize the impact of potential data breach, unquote. The most useful way to back up data would be to store it offline, so that, so that if a cyber criminal does encrypt your device, they can't reach the backups too, allowing you to restore the device without paying a criminal. Now, personally, I recommend if you can, if you can do it to do both a local backup and a cloud backup. And this follows our 321 backup rule, which we talk about all the time, which is for any file you really care about, something you can't replace, you need three copies, which basically means the original and two backups. And two of those copies need to be on two different storage mediums, and one of those should be offsite. So if you have like an external backup drive connected to your computer, that's one backup. Uh, and if you've got one in the cloud, that's a different backup and a different uh, type of medium. So that, you know, that satisfies the 321 rule. But this article is talking about this new kind of a a way to deliver malware via JavaScript on a malicious website. So it's possible just going to the wrong website can get you infected with this kind of a malware. So you got to be really, really careful when you click on those links, especially when you get unsolicited links and emails or text messages. All right, moving on. Uh, This next one's kind of interesting. It's a really weird timing uh, because I actually had one of you, one of my listeners out there, reach out to me and ask me a question about Signal. Signal is the end-to-end encrypted messaging app that I recommend that everybody use. It's free. It's great. Uh, These guys do wonderful work. It's really, really private. Um, Very easy to use. It's much like just about any other messaging app you would use. But because I'm an iPhone user and an Apple person generally, I've always used those versions of Signal for the most part anyway. When you have an iPhone and you want to send regular text or SMS messages, you need to use the built-in messages app. 
But on Android, Google has allowed you to replace the standard Google messaging app on the phone, which lets you send you know text messages, with Signal. And the Signal app, which has been around for a long time, and you will find out in this article, would let you send both regular unencrypted text messages as well as fully encrypted signal messages, depending on who you're talking to. Kind of like on Apple, where it's got green bubble messages and blue bubble messages. Well, Signal is actually taking a step back and removing that capability, which is raising some eyebrows and some ire. Uh, but let me read this article and we'll talk about that a little bit more. And this is uh, from Signal itself. This is a, a press release from Signal. They said, for many years, the Signal app on Android has supported sending and receiving plain text, SMS, and MMS messages, the M and MMS being multimedia, like pictures, uh, in addition to Signal messages. SMS and MMS are standardized communication protocols that allow mobile devices to send and transmit messages, and most people picking up their phone to text or share memes don't really think about them. To give some context, when we started supporting SMS, Signal didn't exist yet. Our Android app was called Text Secure, and the Signal encryption protocol was called Axolotl. That's A-X-O-L-O-T-L. I'd actually forgotten that that was the case. Almost a decade has passed since then, and a lot has changed. In this time, we changed our name, built iOS and desktop apps, and grew from a small project to the most widely used private messaging service on the planet. Now, they're parsing some words there. When they say the most widely used private messaging service, that's they're calling themselves private and some other ones like Telegram and WhatsApp as not truly private. But they are much, much more widely used than Signal. And we continued supporting the sending and receiving of plain text messages via the, uh, the Signal interface on Android. We did this because we knew that Signal would be easier for people to use if it could serve as the home base for most of the messages they were sending and receiving without having to convince the people they wanted to talk to to switch to Signal first. But this came with a trade-off. It meant that some messages sent and received via the Signal interface on Android were not protected by Signal's strong privacy guarantees. We have now reached the point where SMS support no longer makes sense. In order to enable a more streamlined signal experience, we are starting to phase out SMS support from the Android app. You will have several months to transition away from SMS and signal, to export your SMS messages to another app, and to let the people you talk to know that they might want to switch to signal or find another channel if not. The most important reason for us to remove SMS support from Android is that the plain text SMS messages are inherently insecure. They leak sensitive metadata and place your data in the hands of telecommunications companies. With privacy and security at the heart of what we do, letting a deeply insecure messaging protocol have a place in the Signal interface is inconsistent with our values and with what people expect when they open Signal. Back when we started supporting plain text SMS messaging, things were different. Data plans were much more expensive generally and were totally inaccessible in many parts of the world. Now data plans are cheaper and more ubiquitous than they were nearly a decade ago. In a reversal, the cost of sending SMS is now prohibitively high in many parts of the world. This brings us to our second reason. We've heard repeatedly from people who've been hit with high messaging fees after assuming that the SMS messages they were sending were signal messages, only to find out that they were using SMS and being charged by the telecom provider. This is a terrible experience with real consequences. Third, there are serious UX or user experience and design implications to inviting SMS messages to live beside signal messages in the signal interface. It's important that people don't mistake SMS messages sent or received by the signal interface as secure and private when in fact they are not. And while we flag the difference between them in the app, we can only do so much on the design side to prevent such misunderstandings. So the reason this is funny that it came up now, again, is, is that one of my readers reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I've been catching up on some of your podcasts and some of your blogs and stuff, and I noticed that you push Signal, which is great, but you keep saying that in order to use Signal, the other person has to have Signal installed as well. 
But he said on Android, you, that wasn't the case. And I'm like, hmm. And I, and I actually was not aware of this. So I, I thanked uh, this person for bringing this to my attention. And I looked into it. And sure enough, on Android, you could use Signal to send regular SMS messages, meaning technically that you could use Signal to send a message to someone else who did not have Signal installed. With most of these messaging systems, it's a, it's a proprietary thing where both people at either end of a message have to both be running the same app because it's you know, a proprietary protocol. And Apple is different in this way because Apple's default messaging system will simultaneously, collect Signal does now but will not be doing in the near future, allow you to send regular, plain, unencrypted text messages, which is a broad standard supported by you know, all mobile phones, which is why they have it. Uh, the green bubble messages, or if you send it to another Apple device, it will automatically use Apple's messaging system, which is end-to-end -end encrypted, and that's when you get the nice little blue bubbles. So Signal on Android basically did the same thing, but they are finally saying uh, this is causing confusion, this is causing some people to spend a lot of money when they don't expect it, and it's just inconsistent with Signal's you know, focus on privacy. So I totally get where they're coming from on this, but I'm not 100% sure that... I agree it's the right way to go. What I what I could see them doing instead is making it even more painfully obvious when they are not sending, you know, via signal when they're kind of like the green bubble, blue bubble thing. But I mean, I even Apple, I kind of wish would 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 be a little bit more strict about that because even I guess there's a there's a toggle for this on iOS. You could set it to say, if I can't send it via blue, then default to sending it via green. In other words, if I can't send it to an Apple user via messages or if that Apple user is in some weird state that is not accepting regular blue bulb messages, then, you know, drop down to the lowest common denominator of unencrypted text messages. Uh, I think there is a way in iOS to, to disable that downgrade, but uh, you know, it's really nice having that be the default app. I kind of wish that signal would just, you know, find more ways to lock that down. Maybe by default, you know, don't let it downgrade to text messages and you did, that's something you would have to explicitly turn on and it can warn you and all those kind of things. I'm just afraid that it's a step backwards, but you know, at least it will now be consistent. That's the way it works on iDevices on you know, iPhones and such. So, it, you know, from that perspective, at least now it will be consistent and it's just so funny weird timing that, you know, that one of my listeners reached out and asked me that question. I went to the trouble of figuring out that that person was correct. And then like literally within a day or two of that email exchange signal announced that they're no longer going to support that anymore. And it's going to go back to the way I thought it always was, which was that, you know, for you to send a, a message via signal to someone, then the recipient also had to be running the signal app. All right, next up, this is from bleeping computer. <laughs> and then this one else also got a personal story. Uh, let me read the article first. Toyota Motor Company is warning that customers' personal information may have been exposed after an access key was publicly available on GitHub for almost five years. Toyota T-Connect is the automaker's official connectivity app that allows owners of Toyota cars to link their smartphone with their vehicle's infotainment system for phone calls, music, navigation, notifications, integration, driving data, engine status, fuel consumption, and more. Toyota discovered recently that a portion of the T-Connect site source code was mistakenly published on GitHub and contained an access key to the data server that stored customer email addresses and management numbers. That made it possible for an unauthorized third party to access the details of almost 300,000 customers between December of 2017 and September 15th of 2022 when access to the GitHub repository was restricted. 
On September 17th, the database's keys were changed, purging all potential access from unauthorized third parties. The announcement explains that customer names, credit card data, and phone numbers have not been compromised as they weren't stored in the exposed database. Toyota blamed a development subcontractor for the error, but recognized its responsibility for the mishandling of customer data and apologized for any inconvenience caused. The Japanese automaker concludes that while there were no signs of data misappropriation, it cannot rule out the possibility of someone having accessed and stolen the data. For this reason, all users of T-Connect who registered between July of 2017 and September of 2022 are advised to be vigilant against phishing scams and avoid opening email attachments from unknown senders claiming to be from Toyota. So again, this was really just kind of strangely coincident timing because someone I know recently got themselves a new Toyota. And as part of the process of buying a vehicle, which you've probably experienced yourself, uh, certainly a new vehicle is, you know, when they're giving you the car and you've done going through all the paperwork and all the negotiating, all that crap, the sales guy usually sits you or the salesperson usually sits you down in the vehicle and tries to walk you through some of the cool new features of your new vehicle, you know, and kind of give you a tour. Well, this person, this sales guy uh, said to the person buying the vehicle, Hey, give me your phone. Uh, let me get you set up with the Toyota app. And basically, you know, said, let me install this app for you, uh, this Toyota app, and let me put this app on your phone and connect it to your vehicle. Okay, that's that's nice. That's that's helpful. But it was, must have been, I, I didn't ask the name, but it must be this T-Connect app. You know, okay, that's cool. It connects to your, your phone. Now your, your, your phone can talk to your car and get some interesting info. But you know, I mean, I... I would bet a lot, a lot of money uh, without doing any investigation that that app is also mining you for data and certainly reporting back to Toyota and possibly even, you know, by extension to the dealer itself somehow. So anyway, that's just a kind of a coincidence. It's not really related directly to the story, except that I told that person under no circumstances should they install that app. And now I feel even more vindicated. All right, next up, this is from CyberScoop, and this is about a new uh, program being pushed by the, the White House here in the U.S. The White House National Security Council will announce plans Tuesday, and this would have been last week, for a consumer products cybersecurity labeling program intended to improve digital safeguards on Internet-connected devices, a senior White House official told CyberScoop. About 50 representatives from consumer product associations, manufacturing companies, and technology think tanks will convene at the White House on October 19th for a workshop on the voluntary effort ahead of an expected spring 2023 launch. The White House briefly described the effort in a document it released Tuesday outlining various cybersecurity initiatives. The administration plans to start with recommending three or four cybersecurity standards that manufacturers can use as the basis for labels that communicate the risks associated with using so-called Internet of Things devices. Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Tech Ann Newberger is spearheading the initiative, which is modeled after Energy Star, a labeling program the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Energy operate to promote energy efficiency, the senior administration official said. The administration is working with the European Union to align on standards since the White House wants products with cybersecurity labels to be sold globally. The standards under consideration could rate products based on how often manufacturers deploy patches for software vulnerabilities or whether devices connect to the internet without a password or whether devices connect to the internet without a password, the official said. 
It's not clear who will verify companies' claims. The White House hopes the program will reward companies that invest in cybersecurity while also helping consumers find safer products. Some critics of the plan have called it misguided, in part because the U.S. doesn't manufacture most of the connected products that American consumers purchase. Additionally, others said similar policy efforts are underway in the U.K., EU, and Singapore that the U.S. could adopt. Sarah Zatko, chief scientist at the nonprofit research organization Cyber Independent Testing Lab, said more transparency around software safety is, sole, is sorely needed for the consumers and for cybersecurity insurance providers, which currently lack the data to assess risk effectively in the, in the IoT space or Internet of Things space. Zatko said she understands why the White House is focused on paper labels, even though they are quaint because consumers are used to the format and the paper label can easily be linked to more dynamic data stored online. Uh, they've talked about putting a little QR code on these labels for, for getting more info. And this is a quote from Zotko. Quote, It's vital that the paper label contain information that is comparable, not just a gold star. A pass-fail standard where companies are only incentivized to do whatever it takes to hit the minimum requirements for a pass would be a mistake, she said. And one last quote from Zotko, she says, quote, A consumer can't tell the difference between barely passed and passed with flying colors. Part of why I like a label like Energy Star is that it shows actual data I can compare in an easy-to-read presentation which encourages healthy competition between vendors, unquote. I think this is great, actually. I've, I've been calling for this for a while. Is it going to be perfect? No, of course it's not going to be perfect. It, they'll start with something and they'll tweak it as time goes on and they'll make it better. But you got to start somewhere. And transparency is key. Right now, consumers just do not have an easy way to compare product A versus product B in some sort of a standardized and meaningful way. And therefore, market dynamics, the invisible hand of the market, can't work. We need that kind of transparency. We need ways for consumers to be able to compare these products when they're buying them. All right, let's move on to this article about this woman who tried to keep her pregnancy a secret and, and failed. Uh, this is from The Atlantic. When I became pregnant, my partner and I, like many expectant individuals, opted not to tell our friends until after the first trimester. But I had an additional goal, for my friends to learn of my pregnancy before advertisers did. I'm a health privacy scholar, so I know that pregnant individuals are of particular interest to retailers because their purchasing habits change during pregnancy and after birth. Companies are eager to send targeted ads and capture a new customer base. In an attempt to avoid this spamming, and frankly, to see if it was possible, I endeavored to hide my private health status from the advertising ecosystem. My first step was to not directly tell any companies that I was pregnant. I didn't download any femtech products that track ovulation, provide cat videos while confirming a pregnancy result, or give updates on a fetus's growth. With many of these apps, users must agree that their data can be sold, and user agreements are not always foolproof. In one case, the Federal Trade Commission alleged that a femtech company shared consumers' health details with companies such as Facebook and Google in ways at odds with the user agreement. I missed out on knowing when my child would be the size of a grape, but I knew my data would be kept private. I also needed to be wary of the ways that companies could piece together my health status. In a famous example reported in the New York Times Magazine, Target identified pregnant shoppers based on purchases for products such as unscented lotion, vitamins, and cotton balls. Data from internet searches, social media posts, and GPS locations could theoretically tip off a company to a pregnancy. 
armed with this knowledge, I took annoying and time-consuming steps to bolster my privacy. I bought prenatal vitamins and pregnancy tests in person with cash without using rewards or loyalty programs. On the internet, I tried tactics such as using a VPN and non-tracking search engines. I was cautious when going to medical appointments. Knowing the link between location and health status, I turned off my phone's GPS or left it at home during appointments. Yet, because of the lack of data privacy in the U.S., the day finally came when I lost my battle to keep my reproductive information private. I was sitting on my couch, scrolling through social media when I saw it. An advertisement for diapers. It appeared the same week that we lost the pregnancy. Like so many individuals and couples who experience miscarriage, stillbirth, or a devastating fetal diagnosis, we had to face tragedy and grief. The very real risk of pregnancy loss is why many choose not to announce their pregnancies until after the first trimester. I too chose not to tell others about my pregnancy so that I didn't have to risk people accidentally asking about children's names or sending congratulatory cards if, and it turned out when, we experienced loss. Although I could insulate myself from the inadvertent painful faux pas of a friend or acquaintance, I was not afforded the same ability when it came to advertisers. Seeing advertisements of smiling babies and happy families throughout the social media in the days and weeks after the loss made an already unbearable grieving process that much harder. A compounded harm all too familiar for those in similar situations. Who knows how it happened? Did I forget the VPN one time when searching online? Did that time I used my credit card to buy ginger chews and tea tip them off? I'll never know. What I do know is that our country's abysmal privacy framework is failing to protect private reproductive health information. Instead, the choice to protect one's privacy in the U.S. is theoretically up to the individual. However, given the complexities of user agreements, many individuals are unaware of how their data are being shared. For others, a loss of privacy doesn't seem that, like that big of a deal. Their data are priced they are willing to pay for free services, cool apps, or lower-cost goods. Individuals who don't want to make that trade are told to just not use the product. But such a simple solution doesn't address the realities of navigating a health issue in the 21st century. The U.S. Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, only protects information within the healthcare system. Nowadays, however, we constantly obtain and share medical information outside the clinic. Risking privacy loss may be the sole way to seek answers to important questions, find a community of support, or even make a doctor appointment. And you can't avoid purchasing medicine and food. Even the slightest bit of protection is available only to those with the means to pay for privacy. Buying a VPN, avoiding free apps, and having cash on hand for purchases are not options accessible to everyone. Privacy violations are not always benign. Mine came with emotional harm. For others, unwanted disclosure of private medical information comes with the risks of discrimination or stigma. Now, because of the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade, some experts worried that the lack of privacy can create a risk of criminal exposure if companies share amassed reproductive health information with law enforcement. Greater protection is sorely needed. Several pieces of legislation have been introduced in Congress that could go a long way towards fully safeguarding reproductive health information, including data about pregnancy status, pregnancy loss, and abortion. Under HIPAA, we've recognized that medical information is worthy of privacy protection. But in an era of big data, this lofty goal fails. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm not really sure what more to say to that. That's obviously a horrendous story. And it, it's just awful. And it just it, it goes to show that privacy issues are serious. And, and we need to 
well, I mean, we, we need to do better in this country. This whole notice and consent model we have, where supposedly we have the power to opt out of all these things or, you know, read these horrendous privacy policies full of dark patterns and euphemisms and legal speak and somehow come up to the conclusion that, oh, well, if I use this data, then they're going to tell other people what's going on. And I don't want that. So I'm not going to use this app. It's not a real choice. And, you know, the opt out mentality is a loser's game. You don't hear about these stories often, but they happen. And I just really thought it was important to bring it out. Now, this article was longer. I, I, there's a lot of stuff I didn't cover. There's links in this article that you might be interested in reading. So if you would like to get more information, uh, look at the show notes and, and you can check out the whole article. All right, let's move on. So as you all know, I'm an Apple fan. I think Apple does a pretty good job. I will definitely call out when they don't. Uh, and this is an article from The Guardian uh, that kind of brings to light some of the things that I've talked about. And, you know, again, just kind of trying to be even handed. I, I thought it would be good to read this article. For years, Apple has carefully curated a reputation as a privacy stalwart among data-hungry and growth-seeking tech companies. In multi-platform ad campaigns, the company told consumers that what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone and equated its products with security through slogans like, privacy, that's iPhone. But experts say that while Apple sets the bar when it comes to hardware and in some cases software security, the company could do more to protect user data from landing in the hands of police and other authorities. In recent years, the U.S. law enforcement agencies have increasingly made use of data collected and stored by tech companies in investigations and prosecutions. Experts and civil liberties advocates have raised concerns about authorities' extensive access to consumers' digital information, warning it could violate Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches. Those fears have only grown as once protected behavior such as access to abortion have become criminalized in many states. And this is a quote from Caitlin uh, Seeley George, um, who's a campaigns and managed manage director of a digital group called Fight for the Future. Uh, Caitlin says, quote, the more that a company like Apple can do to set itself up to either not get law enforcement requests or to be able to say that they can't comply with them by using tools like end-to-end encryption, the better it's going to be for the company, unquote. In the first half of 2021, Apple received 7,122 law enforcement requests in the U.S. for the account data of 22,427 people. According to the company's most recent transparency report, Apple handed over some level of data in response to 90% of the requests. Of those 7,122 requests, the iPhone maker challenged or rejected 261. The company's positive response rate is largely in line with, and at sometimes slightly higher than, that of counterparts like Facebook and Google. However, both of those companies have documented far more requests from authorities than the iPhone maker. That's because the amount of data Apple collects on its users pales in comparisons with other players in the space, said Jennifer Goldback, a computer science professor at the University of Maryland. She noted that Apple's business model relies less on marketing, advertising, and user data, operations based in data collection. And this is a quote from Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer says, quote, they just naturally don't have a use for doing analytics on people's data in the same way that Google and a lot of other places do, unquote. Apple's drafted detailed guidelines, and there's a link to these guidelines if you're curious, outlining exactly what data authorities can obtain and how it can get it. A level of detail, the company says, which is in keeping with best practices, but major gaps remain, privacy advocates say. 
While iMessages sent between Apple devices are end-to-end decrypted, preventing anyone uh, but the sender and recipient from accessing it, not all information backed up to iCloud, Apple's cloud server, has the same level of encryption iCloud content, as it exists in the customer's account, can be handed over to law enforcement in response to a search warrant, Apple's law enforcement guidelines say. That includes everything from detailed logs of the time, date, and recipient of emails sent in the previous 25 days to, quote, stored photos, documents, contacts, calendars, bookmarks, Safari browsing history, maps, search history, messages, and iOS device backups, unquote. In other words, everything. The device backup The device backup on its own may include, quote, photos and videos in the camera roll, device settings, app data, iMessage, business chat, SMS and MMS messages and voicemail, unquote, according to Apple. Goldbeck is an iPhone user, but opts out of using iCloud because she worries about the system's vulnerability to hacks and law enforcement requests. Another quote from uh, Goldbeck. I am one of those people who, quote, I am one of those people who, if somebody asks if they should get an Android or an iPhone, I'm like, well, the iPhone is going to be more protective than the Android is, but the bar is just very low, unquote. But then he's concerned about the policies around iCloud, and he goes on to say, quote, I have to spend so much time opting out of things they're trying to automatically push me towards using that are supposed to make my life better, but actually just put me at risk. As long as Apple continues to limit privacy to a question of hardware design rather than looking at the full life cycle of data and looking at the full spectrum of threats to government surveillance, Apple will be falling short, unquote. So I have said this over and over again. Uh, This is a glaring hole in Apple's privacy story that I cannot believe they have not fixed. And it's tough. And this guy's right. It is really, really hard to avoid using iCloud. They push it so hard. Uh, every time you do a major update, it pops up and say, would you like to enable iCloud drive? And it's always defaulted to yes. They don't really say much about the privacy implications of this. And once you've done it, it's really hard to back out. Um, and iCloud, while encrypted, is encrypted with keys that Apple holds onto, meaning that Apple could get to any of the data that is stored in iCloud, either for law enforcement purposes or potentially a rogue employee. And that's just, that is just not acceptable today, especially from a company like Apple, who is so big on privacy. They need to allow the option for users to encrypt their iCloud data with a key that they own and Apple cannot access. All right, moving on. This is really weird. And if you've ever seen the movie Minority Report, this is another thing about that movie that I like to point people to where it predicted the future. And this is it. A movie that came out in uh, 2002, by the way. All right, this is from Vice Magazine. Companies in the UK are collecting data from millions of phones to decide which advertisements to show on billboards and location all around Britain, according to a new investigation by Big Brother Watch, a London-based civil liberties group known for confronting public surveillance issues. The report details how personalized ads, a phenomenon that has more than once raised privacy concerns over digital spying, are no longer confined to our private feeds, but instead have begun to overflow into our public lives. And this is a quote from Jake Herford, uh, head of research investigations at Big Brother Watch. Quote, We've uncovered new ways in which millions of people's movements and behaviors are tracked to target us with ads on the streets, resulting in some of the most intrusive advertising surveillance we've ever seen in the UK, unquote. The report identifies several companies who were the first to introduce facial detecting advertising technology to different cities across the country. Unlike traditional paper billboards whose advertisements are printed on vinyl, digital billboards can be programmed to offer more than one message. Many of them also have high-definition cameras to peer down onto the unsuspecting public. 
Algorithms then attempt to detect a person's face, physical characteristics, and even what they might be wearing to tailor advertisements to people walking in the street, in malls, and even on tablets in the backs of cars. ALFI, an American ad tech developer, already has many of these face-scanning tablets in various Lyft and Uber vehicles in the U.S. The company claims that they use AI and machine learning algorithms to analyze how their audience interacts with ads and shows them more relevant ones. The report also notes that two influential billboard owners in the UK, Ocean Outdoor and Clear Channel, rely on facial detection tools made from the French company Quividi. Q-U-I-V-I-D-I. The company claims that its technology is able to scan up to 100 faces at once and detect how long someone dwelled near or paid attention to an ad. It also attempts to discern factors like age, gender, and mood, capabilities which have been heavily disputed and debunked by machine learning experts. The report notes that this data, combined with crowd size and information on attentiveness, can be used to trigger changes that target audiences on a large scale. And this is a quote from a Quividi spokesperson, quote, the Quividi software relies on face detection, not on face recognition. These are two different technologies. Face detection only looks for the presence of a face, whereas facial recognition looks for and identifies a particular person. This means that the Quividi software cannot recognize an individual either in absolute terms or full identity or in terms of repeated exposure e.g. recognizing that someone was at a sequence of different locations or visited the same location twice, unquote. The inquiry also found that profiles of some interest groups are linked to GPS tracking data that allows brands to target people based on where and when they'll likely be that day, crafting advertisements almost in real time. The report specifically calls out AdSquare, a German advertising tech company that has quote-unquote pioneered this phone-to-billboard strategy, as 1 in 10 mobile devices in the UK can contain trackers that send personal data back to them. That means there could be at least 8 million phones that could be sending location and behavioral data to AdSquare at any one time. Herbert said that the only way to force data harvesters to respect people's privacy and give them real choices is to make radical and transparent reforms to the tech sector. So I said I returned to that quote from Quivity person. They're saying, look, we're, we're just we're just detecting that there is a face there. We're not trying to recognize exactly who that face is or attract those faces across billboards for, for now. I mean, <laughs> my guess is that they would do that if they could. And if they're not going to do it, someone else is. In the movie Minority Report, which I made a mention of, there were cameras everywhere, and they would scan your iris or your eye pattern. And so as he's walking around through public spaces, and there's all these digital advertisements floating all around, because it's the future, and advertisements kind of float in midair and, and whatever. As he's walking around, uh, these cameras catch a glimpse of his eye, recognize who he is, and as he passes certain of these digital billboards, they call him out by name. In fact, he walks into, like, I think it's a Gap store. Uh, he, and he walks into the gap. He's greeted by an advertisement floating in the middle of the air that calls him by name and said, Hey, how'd you like that stuff you bought last week? There's a spoiler associated with that, which I won't get you. You should, you should actually just watch the movie, but yeah, guys, this, this is happening. This isn't science fiction anymore. Oh, it's just super creepy, but we're not done. Wait till you get a load of this next story. This is uh, from wired UK. When Hurricane Ian churned over Florida in late September, it left a trail of destruction from high winds and flooding. But a week after the storm passed, some people in the three of the worst-hit counties saw an unexpected beacon of hope. 
Nearly 3,500 residents of Collier, Charlotte, and Lee counties received a push notification on their smartphones offering $700 cash assistance, no questions asked. A Google algorithm deployed in partnership with nonprofit GiveDirectly had estimated from satellite images that those people lived in badly damaged neighborhoods and needed some help. GiveDirectly is testing this new way of targeting emergency aid in collaboration with Google.org, not .com, the search and ad company's charitable arm. The individuals offered money were users of a benefits app called Providers that manages food stamp payments. And for those of you outside the U.S., food stamps are like government-sponsored uh, ways for getting uh, paying for food if you're if you're poor. Targeting message with help from AI software from Google allowed GiveDirectly to offer aid only to people who lived in areas devastated by Ian more quickly than manually sorting through the roles of the app's users. This is the first time GiveDirectly has used this technology in the U.S., but it previously tested a similar idea in Togo in the months after the pandemic crippled the company's economy. There, households were offered to aid based on signs of poverty detected by image algorithms from researchers at UC Berkeley, and clues from cell phone bills. The Florida project was powered by a mapping tool called Delphi, developed by four Google machine learning experts who worked with GiveDirectly over six months starting in late 2019. The software highlights communities in need after disasters such as hurricanes by overlaying live maps of storm damage with data on poverty from sources including the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The storm damage data is provided by another Google tool called Sky or Sky S K A I that uses machine learning to analyze satellite imagery from before and after a disaster and estimate the severity of damage to buildings. And this is a quote from Alex Diaz who leads the google.org's AI for social good team. Quote, "You now have a map that says where is this is hard to say, socioeconomically vulnerable and where has been damaged." That can help on-the-ground support and speed up delivery of aid, unquote. The algorithms that power Sky's damage assessments are trained by manually labeling satellite images of a couple hundred buildings in a disaster-struck area that are known to have been damaged. The software can then, at speed, detect damaged buildings across the whole affected area. A research paper on the underlying technology presented at a 2020 academic workshop on AI for disaster response claimed the auto-generated damage assessments match those of human experts with between 85 and 98% accuracy. In Florida this month, GiveDirectly sent its push notifications offering $700 to any user of the provider's app with a registered address in the neighborhoods of Collier, Charlotte, and Lee counties, where Google's AI system deemed more than 50% of the buildings had been damaged. So far, 900 people have taken up the offer, and half of those have already been paid. If every recipient takes up GiveDirectly's offer, the organization will pay out $2.4 million in direct financial aid. GiveDirectly and Google's hands-off, algorithm-led approach to aid distribution has been welcomed by some disaster assistant experts, with caveats. Reem Talhouk, a research fellow at Northumbria University's School of Design and Center for International Development in the UK, says that the system appears to offer a more efficient way of delivering aid, and it protects the dignity of recipients who don't have to queue up for handouts in public. But Talhouk cautions that by automating the system to such a large extent, there's a risk of losing people who might need help the most. And this is a quote from her. She says, quote, Delivering aid through technologies is more efficient, However, what is lost is the human connection that aid workers develop with impacted communities, unquote. Those personal relationships can be important in preventing people from missing out on aid or benefits assessments, Taluk says. 
She also worries that citizens without smartphones or the power to charge one or too exhausted to act on a notification could miss out. Another danger of the high-tech approach to aid delivery is that an unexpected message offering cash will sound too good to be true. In September, a test by GiveDirectly and Google in the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona sent out push notifications to 700 people, but just under 200 people took up the offer. And this is a quote from uh, Sarah Morin, who's from GiveDirectly. She says, quote, that was a lower response than we should than we would have expected, unquote. She believes the low uptake may have been due to people suspecting the messages were a phishing campaign. The nonprofit is now revisiting those users with another message offering them the same cash payment. Okay, it goes on. Uh, not like getting that again is going to make me feel any better about it or make me any less suspicious, right? Okay, I mean, E for effort, right? I mean, they're trying to do good. They're, they're using automated technologies to figure out what buildings were damaged using another system that knows where people live and are generally poor people um, because the, the app they're using is for food stamps. They're cross-referencing those people with their addresses to find them in buildings that were apparently damaged and the damages are being assessed by satellite images and automatic artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms and saying, you know, here, here's 700 bucks. It looks like your building was, it was damaged and we know you're poor, man. I, I <laughs> again, I'm sure that money is, is going to people that need it, but uh, there's, there's gotta be a better way. I, I don't know. I guess maybe if we had, if we were in a utopian society where I could trust that all this data being collected was only ever going to be used to help people, that would, I guess, be a good thing. But I mean, this article, even then, even if you assume that's true, this article brings up a great point, right? There's no power. So, you know, what if these people don't have, don't have smartphones? What if their smartphones aren't charged? Or what if they suspect that it's a phishing campaign and turn turn it down? This is definitely one of those, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions kind of thing. All right, next up, this is from Gizmodo. This week, Meta revealed the MetaQuest Pro, a new virtual reality headset, headset that costs about as much as a pre-inflation mortgage payment. It's a sleek device with upgraded hardware, advanced features, and cameras that point inward to track your eyes and face. To celebrate the $1,500 headset, Meta made some fun new additions to its privacy policy, including one titled Eye Tracking Privacy Notice. The company says it will use eye tracking data to, quote, help Meta personalize your experiences and improve MetaQuest, unquote. The policy doesn't literally say the company will use the data for marketing, but, quote unquote, personalizing your experience is typical privacy policy speak for targeted ads. And if you had any doubt, Meta executives have been explicit about it. Eye tracking data could be used, quote, in order to understand whether people engage with an advertisement or not, unquote, said Meta's head of global affairs, Nick Clegg, in an interview with the Financial Times. Whether you're resigned to targeted ads or not, this technology takes data collection to a place we've never seen. The Quest Pro isn't just going to inform Meta about what you say you're interested in. Tracking your eyes and face will give the company unprecedented insight about your emotions. And this is from Ray Walsh, a digital privacy researcher at Pro Privacy. Uh, Ray says, quote, We know that this kind of information can be used to determine what people are feeling, especially emotions like happiness or anxiety. When you can literally see a person look at an ad for a watch, glance for 10 seconds, smile, and ponder whether they can afford it, that's providing more information than ever before, unquote. 
Of course, eye tracking data could be used to determine what you're thinking about buying. Maybe you spend a few extra seconds glancing at an expensive digital fedora and the company sends you a coupon an hour later. But measuring your emotions opens up a whole new arena for targeted ads. Digital marketing is all about showing you the right ad at the right moment. Walsh says advertisers could build campaigns with content specifically designed for people who seem frustrated or more cheerful ad for people who are in a good mood. A number of states have passed biometrics laws which regulate data related to physical characteristics. The most significant is Illinois' Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA, which requires companies to get your consent before collecting and processing biometric data. It's probably the country's strongest privacy law because it gives individual people the right to sue companies for violating it. Most other state laws only let regulators take action, which has made enforcement less likely. By contrast, Google, Meta, Snap, and others have settled BIPA lawsuits for hundreds of millions of dollars. Meta has a bad track record when it comes to facial recognition privacy. Tens of millions of Facebook users were missing a privacy setting that let them turn off facial recognition for almost two years before the company fixed the problem. Meta took an ironic victory lap last year when it shut down Facebook's facial recognition features and deleted around a billion face prints. But the company never promised to stop using facial recognition data altogether. And here we are with a shiny new product that will measure the windows to your soul. The question remains, though, what Meta will do with that data after you hand it over. So uh, for those who may not know, Meta, which was Facebook, is creating this thing called the Metaverse, which is this virtual reality uh, based on a concept pioneered by a guy named Neil Stevenson in a book called Snow Crash many, many years ago. You put on these goggles and this goggles, you know, looks like a world. So when you turn your head, it, it looks like you're turning your head in this virtual world. And right now it looks kind of silly, but I mean, this, this is the future. We will be doing this on some degree, you know, many years from now. Uh, so they want you to exist in this world. And of course, now they control everything about this world. They want you to interact in this world. They want you to take company meetings in this world. They want you to have quote unquote zoom meetings with your friends in this world. They want you to do virtual sports in this world. They want, of course, you to game in this world. They want you to watch TV in this world. You know, they want to dominate your reality uh, by having you wear these things as much as possible. And so it's, it's these goggles that you wear. And so they're, they are, they're opaque. Uh, you can't see through them. People can't see your eyes. But within these things are little cameras uh, or sensors or both that look at you, you know, which makes sense. I mean, you know, for these things to optimally represent a world around you, it really helps if the, they not only know where your head is right now, which they can tell with gyroscopes as you turn your head, they need to know where you're looking because right, you can turn your head to the left, but look to the right. For example, if you're trying to optimize the, the quality of a video game, it would really help if you could spend a lot of time, you know, making super high resolution graphics where you're looking right now. But off to the side where you've got almost no vision and your peripheral vision, they could, they could spend a lot less computing time making that look really cool. And in fact, that's actually what your brain does. You know, you, your, your eyes have a lot more sensors packed at the very back, which corresponds to where you're currently looking than on the sides. But if they're also looking at your facial expression and paying attention to where you're looking and for how long, you know, because there, there's going to be ads in this virtual reality. And if they can pay attention to what you look at and then maybe, you know, based on your eyes, determine if you like it or not. And, you know, and, and we can do these things, right? I mean, if you look at how, you know, people's eyes dilate, it's always been said that, you know, and if somebody looks at you and their eyes dilate when they do, that that means that they're interested in you. 
or, you know, there's also people that can look at your eyes and supposedly if they're really careful, they can see if you're lying or not, that sort of thing. Even though the, these things are probably only can see your eyes and I guess your eyebrows and, you know, you could raise your eyebrows or whatever, even if it's only looking at that part of your face, it can tell an awful lot about you. Uh, and with machine learning, they're going to get that down literally to a science. So, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say. Uh, this stuff's coming. It's already here, I guess. Uh, just be aware. All right, last up, this is actually a really long article from Wired. I'm only going to read you part of it, but it talks a little bit more about surveillance of kids and students at college as well and gives you a few tips that I wanted to, to throw out. Okay, there are more eyes on students today than just a teacher's watchful gaze. Thousands of school districts use monitoring software that can track students' online searches, scan their emails, and in some cases send alerts of perceived threats to law enforcement. A recent investigation by the Dallas Morning News revealed that colleges have been using an AI social media monitoring tool to surveil student protesters. While technology companies claim to be able to prevent violence, there's little proof that surveillance can actually protect students. Meanwhile, monitoring software has been used to reveal students' sexuality without their consent. Low-income, black, and Hispanic students are also disproportionately exposed to surveillance and discipline. If your school or your child's school uses monitoring software, there are a couple steps you can take to protect your privacy and start a conversation with your school. Find out your specific school's exact monitoring practices. And this is a quote from Erika Pfefferkorn, who's co-founder of Twin Cities Innovation Alliance and executive director of the Midwest Center for School Transformation. Marika says, quote, a lot of these student activity monitoring tools are different. You don't actually know the full scope of what it is until you're able to have a conversation with someone, unquote. Pfefferkorn also helps to lead the No Data About Us Without Us Institute, where she works to educate parents and students about data, privacy, and equity issues in their school district. She, she suggests starting with a trusted teacher or counselor. If they don't know specifics or don't have any documentation to answer your questions, that can be a red flag and an indication that you may need to approach school or district leadership. Here are some questions you can ask. What software is being used? Does it operate on school devices, over the school Wi-Fi network, or both? If it's student monitoring software, what kind of information does the algorithm scan for? If the algorithm detects a threat or inappropriate content, who does the alert go to? At what point does content get flagged to a third party, such as law enforcement? How is student data secured? Where can students and parents report violations of privacy in the district? What processes does the district have to repair harm? How much of the budget is used for surveillance technology? Whether you're using your phone or your school's Wi-Fi or you're using a school laptop at home, assume that everything you do is being scanned and logged by monitoring software. Did you plug in your personal phone to your school laptop? The photos on your phone might be scanned too. Nude photos sent from students' personal phones, if plugged into school devices to charge, have triggered alerts to school administrators. If you're a student, practice the basics of digital privacy. Don't use your school laptop or Wi-Fi to search for anything sensitive such as medical information. Remember that any kind of data or content on school communications platform can be scanned and flagged. Your school email address, the documents you type into your school Google Drive, your online searches, the images you download, the videos you watch. Even content that is completely safe might be flagged by the algorithm. For example, the software Gaggle can flag keywords related to LGBTQ identities questions such as gay and queer as instances of bullying. Even if you trust a handful of teachers or counselors, remember that your activity could be seen by other adults in the school or even law enforcement. Don't do anything on your device that you wouldn't want them to see as well. 
Others might advise students to, quote, just use your personal device or your family's personal network, unquote. It's important to note that this kind of guidance isn't accessible to all students. For low-income students who might rely on school technology, it might be more difficult to sidestep a school's surveillance structures. Schools might also use AI tools to track social media posts. This is particularly relevant for college students. While colleges generally don't use content monitoring software, it's likely they'll monitor students' social media for potential risk of violence or protest. Just as you would assume that anything you type on your school-issued device can be seen and scanned by an algorithm, assume that your public social profiles can be too. Even private accounts aren't completely safe. Yes, even your super locked-down Finsta account. If you comment on a public account, for example, that might be scanned and subjected to social media monitoring algorithms as well. If you're in doubt, send text messages rather than using a social media platform. You might consider using an encrypted messaging app like Signal. Uh, yeah. If you're discussing topics that might be more sensitive, such as reproductive rights access, the safest way to communicate is with a trusted person in person. All right, so uh, I don't think I have a lot to add to this. I think it's pretty self-evident that this is problematic. But the key here is that this is going on. Uh, you should be aware that this is going on. You need to make sure your kids know that this is going on. And I would absolutely have some of these conversations with somebody at the school uh, to make sure that you know what's going on and make sure that they know what's going on. All right, so that brings me to a completely unrelated tip of the week. But this is something I ran across uh, an article about, and it just brought this whole thing, this whole topic right back up for me. And so it's something that I think I've mentioned off and on here and there. And, and I just thought it was time to actually have a full blog article about this to talk about it. And if you haven't heard me talk about this before, or maybe you didn't, didn't believe me, it just sounds crazy, but, but it is happening. And that is that your smart TV is actually watching you. So smart TVs are basically every TV today because they all plug into the internet, either with an ethernet cable or via Wi-Fi. And it does this because it's got handy built-in applications for YouTube and Netflix and Amazon Prime Video and Hulu and, and all these other streaming services that we've all come to know and hate, right? Because in order to stream this content, you need access to the internet. So you, you've probably, certainly if you're someone who listens to this podcast, you've probably assumed at this point that those applications, you know, Netflix, Amazon Video, whatever, certainly they are tracking what you watch. I mean, you go to Netflix and you say, show me this movie or show me this TV show or whatever, you know, that they're keeping track of that. And because they're, they're going to suggest other things for you to watch. And, you know, you may have made your peace with that, or maybe you found some settings on those apps or, you, you know, say track me less or whatever. But here's where it just gets really bizarre. So your TV, your smart TV can track what you watch as well. And it's not just talking to these apps and saying, you know, Hey, Netflix app, you know, cut me in on this. Let me know what they're watching so I can sell that data myself. Your TV manufacturer has included technology in your smart TV called automatic content recognition. And apparently this is a lot of them. And it's one of the reasons why TV prices have gone down because they are using a technique that they literally call post purchase monetization. And what that means is if you've ever used the app called Shazam, or if you've ever seen somebody use this app, it's a little app you run on your phone that listens through your microphone to whatever is going on around you. And, but you, the way you use it is, Hey, someone's playing a song. I'm in an elevator. I'm at someone's house or a party, or I'm driving along in the car and there's some song playing. I'm like, Oh man, what, what is that? I want to know who sings that song. And you bring up Shazam and it only has to listen for three or four seconds to the song. And it says, Oh, well, this is stairway to heaven by Led Zeppelin or whatever. Because what it does is it takes a sound sample 
from that sound sample generates a, a kind of digital fingerprint and then compares that to fingerprints in a database of all the songs it knows and says, oh, what, what I'm hearing right now is a, is a snippet of Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Well, this automatic content recognition system, this ACR system, does the same thing except it does it for video. So your TV, even if you're not using the apps that are built into the television, if you've got a separate streaming box that you've plugged into your, into your TV, so all your TV is seeing is what's coming over that HDMI cable, just bits, just pixels that are coming across, your TV has the capability to look at the pixels being shown on the screen right now, take a short sample of that video being played, whether it's a TV show, a movie, an advertisement, or whatever, send it through the internet, to its database to figure out what it is you're watching and keep track of what you're watching and sell that data to somebody else. So while you are watching your TV, your TV is watching what you're watching. And by the way, your TV might actually be watching you too. Some TVs actually come in with built-in cameras. Many of them come with built-in microphones so that you can use you know, voice assistant technology. And all of these things could be used to track you. One of the things I have in the book, one of the crazy things I have in the book is there was actually someone who read their privacy policy on a new TV they bought that had a built-in microphone. And right in the privacy policy for the television, it says, you know, hey, be careful what you basically, I'm paraphrasing, be careful what you say around this television because we, you know, we are recording what you're saying and that recording is going to be sent to the internet somewhere. Okay, so, so what do you do? And here's what I do. There's actually a few things you could do. First of all, lobotomize your smart television, make it dumb. Don't plug it into the internet. Don't plug in the ethernet cable. Don't configure the Wi-Fi or, or deconfigure the Wi-Fi so that it cannot connect to the internet. That is number one. That is the nuclear option. That is the, that is the thing that will keep it from transmitting data to anybody. Cause it can't, it can't send the data anywhere if it doesn't have an internet connection. So then you're thinking, okay, well, I, I use those apps on my television to watch Netflix or whatever. Now, what do I do? So Suggestion number two is get yourself a streaming box, an external streaming box, and use that box to run these apps. And of course, now you're thinking, well, okay, well, if I do that, then now it's just going to be the streaming box, the Roku box, the, the Google box, the Amazon Fire TV box that's going to tattle on me, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so my recommendation specifically is not just any streaming box, but to use an Apple TV streaming box. And as we've already talked about in, in, in this article, Apple is not perfect, but if you really want to use Netflix and whatever, use a streaming box. From everything I can tell, Apple TV is not using automatic content recognition. And it's got all sorts of privacy settings. And it makes every app that you install and individually ask you whether or not you want to be tracked, just like it does on your iPhone. It's just much, much better about privacy. And actually, from what I've read so far, it seems like a lot of these streaming boxes actually aren't using ACR. ACR seems to be kind of unique to televisions. And that may just because the streaming stream boxes don't need it. They probably, as part of the agreement for installing some of these apps, like on Roku boxes and uh, Amazon Fire TV boxes, they probably already just get that information directly from the apps anyway. But my understanding, and from what I've read, is that of all the streaming boxes, the Apple TV is by far the most private, which again, it's a low bar. Now, another thing you can do that's outside of this, which actually can be more powerful because it could be used for your entire home, is use uh, more privacy respecting DNS services. Whenever these boxes need to make a connection out to the internet to tattle on you, they need to do a lookup. They need to say, okay, I need to send some juicy info to amazon.com uh, about what you're watching right now on your Fire TV. 
or I need to send some information to samsung.com because you know, you've got a Samsung TV and the ACR system has figured out what you're watching right now. They need to say, okay, where, where is samsung.com? Where is amazon.com? Give me the IP address. And that service is called DNS domain name service. And so therefore DNS is kind of a gatekeeper to the internet. And so if you can use a custom DNS service that will block specifically known data trafficking lookups, you can effectively block a lot of that tracking uh, for your entire house if you if you set it up for the your home Wi-Fi router. So there's a service that I've just started using called Next DNS, which I really like so far, that allows you to turn on a lot of tracker blocking. And by the and since I set it up for my Wi-Fi router, every device in my home, all my smart devices and everything, get their DNS service from my router. Uh, and your router usually just accepts whatever your internet service provider says, because your router says, hey, give me an IP address, and hey, while you're doing that, let me know where I should send my DNS queries. And so the ISP usually gives you that those DNS servers, but you can override that in your router and use NextDNS, uh, and then you can configure NextDNS to not route a lot of this uh, data trafficking stuff. You can also use this cool device called a Pi Hole, and that's a Pi for Raspberry Pi, which is a $35 computer. Uh, that's really a lot of fun. They're hard to get right now uh, with supply chain shortages. They're hard to get, but I had one for a long time and it worked great for a long time. And I set it up as my DNS server for my house. And then for some reason, it just started flaking out, which is why I started, why I tried out next DNS. The next DNS is free. Just have to set up an account. Uh, normally I'm really kind of, you know, suspicious of free accounts like this, but from everything I can tell, these guys are actually doing it for the right reasons. And uh, in this case, free isn't always bad. So anyway, I've got a blog article about this. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you've already got it in your email inbox waiting for you right now. So go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com or fdsd.me slash blog, and you can find an article there with more links and more information about how to set that kind of stuff up. So there you go. It's been a lot. We had a lot of information to cover today. There's your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, it's already been a long show. I just had a couple more things to get you through real quick. I do have another Dear Carrie. Uh, someone sent me this question. I'm going to answer it here in just a second. Uh, please send me your questions. I, I, I put this request out and I tried this once a long time ago. Didn't get a lot of response. That's kind of happening again. I'm kind of surprised. I, I was hoping to get more, especially since I incentivized the sending in of questions because once a month I'll draw some names out of the hat of people who have sent me questions and I'll send them a free copy of my book. So once a month I'll be doing that. I have gotten some people sending questions. That's great. And I'm going to answer one right now, but I need more. Please send me questions. That's dear Carrie, D-E-A-R-C-A-R-E-Y at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Shoot me an email. Let me know what your question is and I will read it and answer it here on the air. And if you want, if this would be fun for you, you can also send me an audio snippet of you asking the question. I will gladly play that on the air and then answer the question. So I've just got one question I'm going to answer today. We're already uh, going along here today. And it's kind of a simple one, but a difficult one. And the question was from an anonymous listener. How do I convince my friends or family to adopt some privacy practices like switching to an encrypted chat or not geotagging me or themselves in photos on Facebook and Instagram? And that is a great question. It seems simple, but it's, it's difficult. And it's the one I struggle with all the time. And so I don't have, honestly, I don't have a magic bullet here. It's really hard to, to convince people to switch to some of these more private technologies. They're used to what they're used to. It's hard to get away from, you know, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and things that they're just used to using, but you can make it known. And I, and I think it would start the conversation uh, if you make it known 
that, you know, hey, if, if you would, you know, when you're posting pictures, you know, maybe leave pictures of me out. Or if you do, please, you know, don't tag me in those photos because I'm trying to, you know, keep a lower profile, you know, and maybe that causes them to ask the question, you know, why? And then you can have a conversation about privacy and why it matters to you and why giving that information to these social media platforms can be problematic. I, I don't know of a better solution than that. I mean, the more we can talk about it, the better. So, uh, you know, this is an opportunity for a conversation, but you can also like, for instance, with the, with the messenger thing, you can always just catch it as a, Hey, this is kind of fun. This is free. Let's try this out. And you know, Hey, I, I want to try out the signal thing, but for me to do that, I need to have other people doing it. Hey, just, just download this and install it. Let's try it out. And at that point they have the app installed, but yeah, this is, this is a tough question. This is something that I struggle with constantly. You can try to impress upon them the importance of privacy, but it, you know, it's kind of hard to do in kind of an offhand way, you know, Hey, how's your day been? Oh, did you think about privacy today? Here's something, here's an app you should install. It's, it's difficult, but you know, when opportunities present themselves, bring it up, suggest that they install signal, suggest that they find, you know, more private email providers, use a better browser with some privacy plugins. You know, when you see that they're being inundated with ads or if they complain about being inundated with ads or feel creepy that something seems to be following them around when they're surfing the web, you know, use those opportunities to say, you know, it can be better. There are things you could do. Here, here's an example. I've got a resources page on my website at firewallsdon'tstrapdragons.com that's got a lot of websites, uh, including, you know, some inspirational kind of essays and YouTube videos and things that I often, you know, send to people. So if you need kind of a ready, you know, list of, things you might be able to present to somebody, you can find some information there. And of course, there's a whole ton of information in the book. And actually, I've got a whole chapter now dedicated to privacy in the fifth edition of the book that'll be coming out toward the end of the year. So speaking of that, let me quickly segue to that. The 300th episode is coming up very soon. Uh, I'll be interviewing Bruce Schneier for that. He and I have got the date set to do that interview soon. And then it will be coming out on November 28th. That will be the day the 300th episode drops. That will also be the day that I'll announce the promotions around uh, the 300th episode and the fifth edition of the book. So stay tuned for that. Again, send me your questions. I've got some lined up, but I'd like to get a lot more. Send them to dearcarry at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. If you want more information, go to fdsd.me.me slash QNA. There are links in the show notes, of course, to all of that as well. All right, we are running along. Thanks for hanging in there, guys. Got another great interview for you next week. Uh, we're speaking with a gentleman named Adrianus from Nord. And I've got a lot of other great interviews in the pipeline. So subscribe if you haven't, and that way you won't miss any of them. Have yourself a great and spooky and fun Halloween, and I will talk to you again next week. So until then, stay safe out there, everyone, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>